Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And if you're interested in listening to past editions, all of the shows are posted on the Yale Cancer Center website at yalecancercenter.org. This week, Dr. Stephen Gore will be speaking with Dr. Scott Huntington. Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Dr. Huntington is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and he joins Dr. Gore for a conversation about hematological malignancies. Scott, you, uh, you treat lymphoma. What's lymphoma? Yeah, so lymphoma is um, actually the most common blood cancer, and blood cancer as, as a whole is actually relatively rare. So about 10% of all cancers are blood cancers, and um, lymphomas make up the, um, actually the majority in terms of numbers. Um, but lymphoma represents a disease arising from the lymph nodes, and um, in total there's almost 60 different types of lymphoma. So it's a rather uh, basket uh, diagnosis, and um, we're learning more each and every year about um, subdivision within lymphomas and, and how we actually recognize patients have different lymphomas that need different treatment. Um, so it's a really fascinating field that's, that's moving um, really dramatically to improve uh, patient outcomes and diagnosis. Now, does lymphoma include Hodgkin's disease? Is that a lymphoma? Yeah, so you can parse lymphomas in a number of different ways. One is Hodgkin's lymphoma versus non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is more common. Um, that's typically a disease of the aging, uh, whereas Hodgkin lymphoma has two distributions, one in the early phase where people are typically in the late adolescent and early adulthood, and then again towards the 60s. Um, that's about 8,500 cases in the United States each year in terms of Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, Non-Hodgkin lymphoma are much more common. We're talking about closer to 70,000, 80,000 cases in, in the United States each year. Hmm. Wow. So 70 or 80,000, and there's 60 types or so, huh? That's true. Yeah, that's true. So it's a really, um, although I'm a specialist in lymphoma, each day is very different in clinic where I have different ages and, and certainly different histologies and diagnoses that um, really keep my day varied, uh, certainly in the clinic. And, and do you organize your days that way? Like today is my... This kind of lymphoma, and tomorrow's my that kind of lymphoma day? Uh, not quite yet, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly we could get there. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, that seems really complicated to have to keep track of that many different diseases. I mean, I, you know, we, we train in oncology, and uh, there's lots of different cancers, and, you know, I, I can't keep track of all of those. And now here you are theoretically treating one kind of cancer, but it's really so many. Yeah, so I think as we uh, learn more about cancers in, in general, that we're further subclassifying lots of cancers and kind of the personalized medicine approach of, of treating uh, patients with cancers. In terms of lymphoma, although there are 60 different types, how, I, how in my mind I classify things are uh, whether they're aggressive or whether they're more on the indolent or, or slow-growing side. And so even though we have 60, we can further kind of um, classify those patients in terms of the presentation, how patients present with these illnesses, and then also how we might be able to treat them um, based on whether these are aggressive diseases or, or more indolent uh, processes. Why is it important to differentiate between those that are more aggressive 
and those that are more slow-growing or indolent, as you put it? Yeah, that's a really good good uh, question. So um, in terms of aggressive lymphomas, what makes them aggressive? And, and typically, it's that these cause patient symptoms over weeks to months. So patients present to their provider with, say, fever or chills or night sweats or rapidly enlarging lumps or lymph nodes. And when a di- diagnosis is made, that typically would show a histology where the cells are replicating, and this is an aggressive disease. Um, Conversely, more indolent processes typically progress over uh, months to years, and typically patients are asymptomatic when they're diagnosed. And so a patient may present to their primary care doctor and have routine blood work or routine exam and have a a slightly abnormal finding, which could lead to diagnosis. In aggressive versus indolent, not only clinically, um, has an importance, but actually in terms of treatment. And so aggressive lymphomas actually are, are quite sensitive to our treatments. So if we give chemotherapy, we are hoping that we're actually going to cure the majority of patients with aggressive lymphomas. Whereas patients that have the more indolent process, uh, we actually may just observe these patients over time because they may either never become symptomatic or they may be able to live quite well with their disease for a number of years before needing treatment. And so um, although there are 60 subclassifications of lymphoma, we can really um, focus on whether they're aggressive that re- require more intensive treatment versus the more indolent that could really be potentially watched and, 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 and um, surveyed very closely. Well, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me if I were a patient and I found a lump or my doctor found a lump and you told me it was cancer, but we're just going to watch it, I, I'm not sure I'd really go for that. I mean, I want that thing out of there. Why can't you just like go in there and cut it out or blast it out or... I don't want to like be watching cancer. What's what's that about? Yeah. So, um, an indolent process or indolent lymphoma um, can can really be varied in itself. Whether it's more extensive, whether a patient has only one location or multiple locations, and if it is only one location, sometimes surgery or blasting it with radiation, as, as you may call, um, can can actually lead to very good outcomes. Um, but if lymphoma in an indolent process is more on the systemic side, that patients have multiple regions, uh, what we found over time that if we give treatment right away, patients can certainly have some side effects from the, from the treatment. Um, and what we find over time is that these lymphomas, the indolent lymphomas, typically come back um, with, with treatment. Whereas um, if we wait for patients, and actually it's not so much waiting, but actually surveying patients. So if a patient has an indolent disease, an indolent lymphoma, we watch them very closely. And over time, if we detect symptoms, we start treatment. And it seems like that that's active surveillance with treatment when times of symptoms arise seems to be the best way of treating indolent processes and in, in, in lymphomas. So the outcomes aren't better if you treat early? That is exactly right, yes. Huh. And, and why aren't those patients easily cured? Like, what, what's up with that? Yeah, so how I think of it is an indolent lymphoma um, has many uh, cancer cells that are, are quite indolent or are basically dormant, and so they're not replicating. And so when I give chemotherapy to these patients, they get rid of the replicating uh, portion, but there are plenty of cells that uh, are basically um, dormant and resistant to active chemotherapy. When you take that to the aggressive lymphoma, such like diffuse arch B cell or Burkitt's, where really all the lymphoma cells are replicating quite quickly, our chemotherapy can eradicate all of that. And so it, it really, the, the pathophysiology and the, and the basis of these lymphomas does explain some of the activity of how our chemotherapies work and whether a patient can be cured or whether they can be rendered in a very good remission that can last years, potentially, um, and be treated kind of over time. So indolent processes we typically try to convert into a more chronic um, disease where patients um, really 
hopefully don't have a lot of uh, symptoms from the disease and also don't have a lot of symptoms from our treatment. That's the goal when I see a patient with indolent. Whereas the goal is very different. If someone comes with an aggressive lymphoma, my goal is to get rid of it for good and not have it come back. Hmm. So can you walk us through what happens to a patient if they find a lump or somebody finds a lump and it is going to turn out to be lymphoma? How does that I'll play out. Yeah, so many things can cause lumps or lymphadenopathy. Infections, so if someone has a viral illness, um, they may have a lump under their, their, their um, neck or throat, and um, it, it, it could certainly go away as part of the healing process and getting over infections. If lumps persist for, for you know, weeks potentially um, and don't wax and wane, that, that may trigger that maybe this is something else besides a normal inflammatory process. And so frequently what we do is if someone has a lump is that we need a biopsy, um, whether it be a needle or actually more, more commonly an excision, actually taking that lymph node and looking at it under the microscope. Okay. And so uh, you, you sent me to some kind of procedure person who's taken out my lump, and you sent it to the lab, and I'm thinking that I just had the flu, and now you're going to tell me I have cancer, and I'm going to be mad at you. <laughs> now what happens? Yeah, so um, like, a, like when we take out the lymph node, there are a number of things that, that go on, looking at how they look under the microscope, how their genes might be arranged, um, to really help us classify if this is lymphoma. If it is a lymphoma, uh, we further classify as whether it needs treatment or not. And ways that we could do that is doing imaging. So frequently we, we do staging procedures where we might do a CT scan, a CAT scan, an uh, X-ray machine, or a nuclear medicine scan to really get a sense of where the lymphoma is. Um, and depending on the stage of the disease in lymphoma, uh, we might have slightly different treatment. Maybe it's only chemotherapy alone. Other times, if there's only limited stage, so we have only a few spots, we might do chemotherapy along with radiation for those patients. Hmm. But there's always chemotherapy. Uh, typically, there is always chemotherapy that, that is quite effective for, for patients with lymphoma. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, so okay. So I'm not, I stop being mad at you because I know you're doing the best for me, and I deal with my stages of cancer, dealing grief, and I say, okay, Dr. Huntington, you can go ahead and treat me, and you've given me chemotherapy. How long does that last for usually? Yeah, so um, your classic chemotherapy for lymphoma typically lasts on the order of four to six months. Oh, that's um, not so bad. And the goal of that uh, frequently is really to get this in remission, mm -hmm. where we aren't able to detect lymphoma. And if it's an aggressive lymphoma, we're hoping that the remission stays forever, that we're curing these patients. If it is on the more indolent process, we typically know that our treatments can render disease in remission, but over time, months, years, potentially even decades, the lymphoma is likely to come back in those cases. Um, and so um, the, really the, the most important when I see a patient is can I cure them with my, with my treatment? Um, and if I can, I'm going to do everything I can to, to do that. If we can't, then we have to really balance the, the, the pros and cons of our treatment, the, the side effects of the treatment and also the side effects of the lymphoma. And so it's a really um, kind of important thing to, to think about patients when they come to see you is what is our goal of our treatment? 
And do you tell the patients that? Do you tell your patients you're not going to cure them? Yeah, I think it's it's a process. So um, when patients in particular have indolent lymphoma, then I tell them, you know, we are going to likely need to treat this at some point, but I see us treating in the future. That's the first step that we need to overcome um, with a provider and a patient to to, to the idea that we may not need treatment emergently for indolent lymphomas. The second process is really getting over the idea that our treatments are going to be effective, but this is likely something that you'll be dealing with for the rest of your life. And what we're finding out as our new treatments become available is that we have so many different lines of therapy for indolent lymphomas that our goal really is to convert it into a, um, a, a very chronic and a disease that potentially doesn't impact your quality of life um, significantly. So it's really um, moving towards uh, minimizing toxicities of our treatment. So we have a number of newer agents that are um, not traditional chemotherapies, but are, are actually oral medications, much like you would take for, say, high blood pressure or diabetes. Our goal, hopefully, is to render lymphomas into a very, very uh, treatable um, with, without the significant side effects. Gotcha. And if I um, still am resisting this and I say, I don't know, I don't like this kind of watch and wait thing and I want to be cured, could I go somewhere else and have somebody tell me differently? I mean... Um, yeah, so there, there's quite cons- a consensus on terms of indolent versus aggressive lymphomas. Gotcha. Um, there are um, occasionally things that we can do, like I talked about radiation in, in early stage disease, or these more kind of um, advanced approaches like allogeneic stem cell transplants that sometimes can render patients in cures. Um, but those have significant side effects, and I think there's a, a wide consensus that the aggressive lymphomas we treat aggressively. We really want to we, we really want to cure those patients and get them in remission that, that is long lasting, whereas the indolent process we're really now trying to figure out how do we minimize our, our treatment toxicities um, because these patients live very well uh, with their disease and it's a new process that we as a, both a provider and a patient um, help them overcome and, and, and live with the, their disease. All right, so I'm counting on you to talk me through this one, but before you do, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about lymphoma with our guest, Dr. Scott Huntington. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Smilo Cancer Hospital's tobacco treatment program operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service clinical practice guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. And I'm talking with my guest, Scott Huntington, about lymphoma. So, Scott, you were, uh, before the break, we were talking about, uh, and I was kind of teasing a little bit about uh, the fact that there were some lymphomas uh, where people live quite well, but 
they are likely not to be cured, but they can live many years. And and uh, I was imagining, as as I know must happen, uh, that there m- must be patients who push back on that because, you know, our our society focuses so much on I'm going to beat this cancer, I'm going to fight this cancer. Um, but uh, you were proposing that for some cancers and some lymphomas, really learning to live well with a cancer may be the more noble goal or maybe the only realistic goal. Yeah, I, I think that is a um, – it's not an easy thing to, to overcome, and it takes time. Um, so when a patient uh, comes to my office and uh, learns that they have a lymphoma diagnosis – uh, whether it's aggressive and we're going to treat it aggressively or whether it's indolent where we may actually not treat it for years, um, it's a process of, of really coping and, and, and education, um, learning more about the disease. I think what's really encouraging is that for both aggressive lymphomas and for the, the indolent lymphomas, we are learning more about the disease and our treatments are, are getting um, ever better. And so um, for the indolent processes, uh, minimizing the side effects of our treatments and moving more towards a non-chemotherapy approach is something that many of us are, are really um, enthusiastic about, both clinicians and patients. And so um, we really do have um, a future that is very bright in terms of the current fu- current treatment and also in the future um, that looks even brighter for, for patients to have uh, indolent lymphomas. And I guess one of the ways that uh, that you we all learn about the newer treatments or the newer biology is by going to international meetings where where this information is shared, and, and I guess you were recently at one, is that right? Yeah, so I, we just returned from uh, San Diego where the American Society of Hematology annual meeting was held, and this is a meeting of about uh, twenty to 30,000 um, uh, hematologists and basic scientists uh, throughout the world that, that come to meet each year, and um, the goal is really to review um, and discuss the, the most kind of pressing and up-to-date research in, in blood disorders, and so... Um, there definitely were, were some um, kind of high-profile and important studies that were presented uh, this year and will likely impact how we're going to be treating patients for the next year uh, with lymphomas. So what did you find exciting uh, or what did you learn that was new that our patients might, our re- listeners might find interesting? Yeah, so the, the two most common lymphomas, um, one being aggressive is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, the other uh, most common lymphoma is actually an indolent lymphoma called follicular lymphoma. And there were a number of large studies that um, that were reported at, at ASH this year. Um, in the diffuse large B-cell uh, realm, um, there was a study where... Um, was comparing a therapy that's a little bit more intensive uh, intensive treatment to what we typically use. And this was a study that we knew was underway and had actually closed accrual a number of years back. And us, uh, as a lymphoma com- community, were really anxiously awaiting. Um, to, to some surprise that the, the standard treatment, the less intensive treatment, actually had the same uh, outcomes to the more intensive treatment, but actually had fewer side effects. And so that trial was important. It was what we call a negative study, but it reassured that what we were doing is actually, uh, is, 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 is actually um, kind of the current standard. And so that will likely impact how we think about patients going forward. Of course, it's kind of disappointing if you felt that the standard uh, must have been having some failings uh, or shortcomings or you wouldn't have tried to make it better. And then the way you tried to make it better turned out not to. 
Yeah, no, that's that, kind of disappointing in some ways, right? It is disappointing. Um, I would say that the outcomes for the standard treatment are actually quite good. Um, and uh, this, this typical treatment called uh, CHOP or RCHOP, which has been a standard for a number of years, um, has bested uh, other treatments in the past. And so historically, this is a really a good treatment um, that uh, is generally well tolerated. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to try to make it better. Um, and so there are other trials going on uh, currently trying to, again, advance advance the needle uh, for, for treatment of large cell lymphoma. Uh, but this this treatment in general, the more intensive therapy um, didn't win out in this in this this realm. And large cell lymphoma isn't just one disease either, right? Yeah, that, no, that's true. So uh, there are a number of different forms of large cell lymphomas. Um, the most common is diffuse large B cell lymphoma. That's the most common lymphoma in, in general. Uh, but there are uh, T cell lymphomas that can be large and aggressive. And so uh, this trial was really limited to the large B cell lymphomas. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there was a, a clinical trial looking at uh, follicular lymphoma. And uh, follicular lymphoma, again, is a very treatable malignant, uh, treatable lymphoma disease uh, with either chemotherapy or what we call immunotherapy. And so there's an immunotherapy that has been around for about 15 years and um, really is a mainstay of treatment for B-cell lymphomas. And this trial compared the... Um, the, the immunotherapy that's been around for 15 years to a newer therapy, and in this clinical trial, the newer therapy did seem to improve uh, outcomes. So it's likely that many lymphoma providers over the next years will be transitioning in some settings to this newer uh, immunotherapy treatment. So the newer therapy was also an immunotherapy? It was, yes. Uh-huh. And these immunotherapies, they're not oral, like some of what you were talking about, the, the newer, more exciting drugs. Yeah, so the, the immunotherapies are still infusions, right? Yeah, so the immunotherapies are still infusions, and they're typically given alongside chemotherapy. Um, they uh, augment the, the, uh, the chemotherapy and also impact how our, our, our own immune system might recognize the lymphoma cells. And so it's an important component, um, but it also typically is given as an infusion every either weekly sometimes and, and sometimes every uh, up to every month or two months. Gotcha. But you said some of the new th therapies are oral. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. So there are a number of newer therapies that are actually currently in clinic um, and usually are, are, are used on a um, single agent basis. And so you may be on a therapy that you take every day that we hope will keep your lymphoma at bay for, for, for a long period of time, years potentially. Um, what we're trying to figure out is whether combining therapies, um, much like for things like infectious diseases, where if we had a cocktail of treatment that were well tolerated, we might be able to improve how Outcomes. We're trying to find that cocktail uh, for lymphoma and, and, and as well for, for these new oral agents. Hmm. So if I were a patient um, with a diagnosis of lymphoma, whether it's a new lymphoma or a current lymphoma, um, how do I, you know, how would I even learn about whether there's any studies that I could go on if, um, if I wanted to? Because, you know seems to me that I might want to know what's the latest and greatest or most promising and, and be part of that if I could. Yeah, so there are a number of um, available websites. Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a, has a great website that has active clinical trials. Um, you also can go on um, the Smilo Cancer website. We'll have clinical trials. I, th I think as a lymphoma specialist, um, it's really important 
for patients to recognize that the diagnosis, being sure about the diagnosis is the first step. Um, again, there's 60 different types of lymphomas, um, and you really need to have a hematopathologist, the doctors that look at your tissue, um, really to confirm what type of lymphoma it is. That's the first step. The second step is going and basically being seen by um, a clinician that's comfortable in treating lymphomas. And, and so um, I think those are the two kind of two metrics on, on kind of starting your lymphoma process in, in terms of care is making sure that the, the diagnosis is there. And the number two is that your treating provider um, has, has knowledge about the treatment and also knowledge about ongoing clinical trials. Yeah, and I guess from the numbers that you stated, if, if uh, you know, if lymphomas are what, something like 5% of cancers or 8% of cancers, you know, many general oncologists might not see a lot of lymphoma. That, that potentially is true. Um, the more common lymphomas, diffuse large B-cell, follicular lymphoma, um, there are some moving pieces in terms of further subclassifying diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, but for the more rare diseases, a provider may only see a, f a few of those every couple of years. And so um, I think we're recognizing that centers of excellence where patients are, are seen um, by providers that are lymphoma clinicians or hematopathologists that really focus on lymphoma um, are likely to be increasingly important as this world of personalized medicine um, really shifts how we think about lymphoma and treat lymphoma. So it's certainly reasonable to consider a second opinion, even if you're very comfortable with your oncologist and your oncologist may be comfortable treating lymphoma in general, it wouldn't hurt to see a lymphoma expert to at least vet what's going on and make sure that everything is, is appropriate, right? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And I, I also think that having a second opinion but also receiving potentially treatment local is important. So um, it's really important that um, providers and centers of excellence work together and, and, and collaborate to, to really make sure that the diagnosis is, is 100% sure and also that the treatment um, really is on the right path. But it's frequent that patients can actually be treated locally under the guidance of their local oncologist. Right. And I know that's something that we've, they've, we've worked here in the very carefully in the Yale Cancer Network uh, to have our cancer center really be available uh, in local sites from Torrington, uh, you know, down to uh, North Haven and now out to L&M Hospital um, so that patients can get the same care essentially. Uh, without having to, to come down to New Haven. Yeah, no, I think that's worked quite well. So, so we have um, a weekly meeting where we uh, discuss as clinicians and radiation oncologists and radiologists and pathologists. We come together and really discuss the, the cases that have some uncertainty. Um, and we invite uh, providers that are outside of the, the, the New Haven campus to, to call in and, and teleconference in. And so I think that's likely the way that we're going for the treatment of most cancers is as, as we learn more about the cancer and further sub, subclassify, we, we are likely to need experts that really focus on one, one, um, you know, one disease process, but we have to recognize that um, you know, we, as, a, as a community, as a healthcare provider in the system, that we need to reach out to those providers that are actually on the front lines, that are actually doing the treatment, and really welcoming them into that process. And so I think I've been very happy, I've been here for about two years, I've been very happy with how the process is working in terms of the care centers and in terms of the multidisciplinary um, and collaboration that's been going on. Now, you started sounding like somebody who thinks about ways that healthcare should be delivered in larger sense. Uh, I'm sensing there's another side of your interests that are not only just uh, 
singularly disease-focused. Do you want to talk yes. about that at all? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I wear two hats. One is a lymphoma clinician, and the other really as a health services researcher. So I think about um, translating um, our clinical trials into really real-world care. So ensuring that patients, um, not only in academic centers, but really throughout uh, the United States, have access to high-quality um, cancer care. And so that's really my, my research focus when I'm not in the clinic. Um, when I'm not in the wards, I'm really focused on what's going on in, in the real-world practice of, of oncology and what sort of barriers um, might we be able to overcome to improve patient outcomes. And how do you even measure that? I mean, do you make phone calls, focus groups, surveys? I mean, how, how do you figure out what's going on out there? Yeah, so I, I, it really... Um, has uh, many different methods of uh, to, to, to really study this. And so sometimes it's just patient groups. So having patients come in and, and really be, um, what we call qualitative research, kind of learning their experience, because that can be really helpful. At the, the opposite end is actually doing big data research. So looking at things like insurance claims and, and, and certain potential barriers to uh, treatment or out-of-pocket costs, those are the things that we actually do uh, here in the cancer outcome group um, that I'm part of that these are very large, um, large-scale insurance-based uh, designed tr- clinical trials, or not clinical trials, but uh, claims-based style, uh, trials. So you've got the information about what insurance paid for, for individual patients kind of thing, and, and, you, and so you see what's going on across the country like that? Is that what happens? Yeah, so we can look at um, what what provider a patient saw or what health system a patient saw, and we can actually look at what care they received, and we can try to look at um, what are some of the characteristics that go into high-quality care. And if we identify that, then our goal is really to to disseminate kind of the special sauce to the other providers that are providing the the high-quality cancer care. Dr. Scott Huntington is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, go to YaleCancerCenter.org, where you'll also find past episodes in audio and written form. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in every Sunday night to learn more about the progress being made in the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.